Good morning. While we open up in a word of prayer, Father, thank you for uh, the salvation that we have in Jesus' name. Thank you for the robes of righteousness that we wear, that we don't have to come to you in our own cleanliness or clean ourselves up, Lord, but that you take us as we are and you give us uh, the life of your Son for our own. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that. As we even think more deeply on that truth as we approach the Lord's table this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes in fresh ways to the words of your scripture, and uh, even more so, Lord, uh, to the living word to which they point your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, it is good to be together here this morning. I was watching uh, that Dave Ramsey video. I hadn't seen that before. He's, he's pretty excited. It reminds me of me when I, when I preach. And uh, actually, what it did remind me of, when I first started uh, preaching at Calvary, there was an older gentleman, and I had preached maybe one or two times, and he came up to me and he said, he said, now you do a pretty good job. He said, just get a little more charisma. And I, I don't know. I don't know. This is what I got. This is what I got. So just going to have to all do the best we can, right? All right, so we are working our way uh, this month of August and then here this uh, Labor Day weekend through a sermon series on life of worship. And uh, the last two sermons in the series uh, are baptism, an exploration of baptism and communion. So we looked at baptism last week, and this week we continue on with our look at how the sacraments fit into a life of worship, and we're looking at uh, communion this week. Last week we saw that baptism... Uh, is an entry right into the church that signifies God's covenantal work of salvation in our lives. Or we could say it like this, faith is the means by which we enter into a saving relationship with God. Baptism is the means by which we celebrate that relationship and enter into formal relationship with the church. So if you missed uh, last week's sermon on baptism, I encourage you Uh, to go back and listen to it because baptism and communion go together. There's a a logical ordering between the two of them. And and communion makes more full sense in light of baptism and baptism makes more full sense in light of communion. But in any case, we're now looking at communion this week. And like our sermon last week on baptism, we approached it through the lens of three particular questions. What, What is communion? What does communion signify? And then what does communion promise? So that's how we're going to look at it today. That'll be the three divisions to the sermon. What is communion? What does communion signify? And what does communion promise? And as we'll see, communion like baptism contains within itself a picture or a statement of the gospel. We're going to touch on a number of passages this morning, but there's two passages in particular that I want us to look at. One of them is in your bulletin, which is 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, but I've added another passage since that went to press, and it's going to be Luke 22, 14 through 20. So we'll be looking at two passages of Scripture this morning. Now, let me give a a word of warning before we uh, dig into our texts this morning. This is uh, an unusually dense sermon. Uh, And as I began to study it this week and prepare for it, it struck me that I really, if I had my preferences, I would do an entire sermon for each of these questions that we're going to be looking at. 
but Pastor Todd uh, won't budge, and so he's starting a new sermon series next week. So I got to get it all into this uh, sermon here this morning. So it strikes me that it is very likely the case that I have probably bitten off more than all of us can chew, but we're going to do our best with this. And to make matters worse, I don't have any funny stories to tell this time. (laughs) When I said that in the first service, there were audible groans as though to have to listen to me preach without a funny story would just be, well, we'll do all. So we're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way, right? No snoozing, no daydreaming, no waiting to check in for just the funny story. This is important stuff that we're looking at. This is really rich, textured stuff that we're looking at. And a blessing waits for us uh, in our, our study of communion and what the Lord has to say about it. I know for myself, I've been blessed even in preparing this sermon. So Luke 14, uh, 22, I'm sorry, Luke 22, 14 through 20. Let's stand together. We're going to read these passages together. Luke 22, 14 through 20. I'll read you follow along. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you, Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, "This This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let me just, let us all turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, looking at 14 through 22. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, free from, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so turning back to Luke, which will be our first text this morning, Luke 22, we get to our first question that we're asking. What is communion? How do we just even think about it? What is the function that it has in the life of the church? What's the basic framework for approaching the table? Let me give us a definition. Communion is a covenant meal participated in regularly by the people of God that reaffirms and signifies our participation in the new covenant. 
Now Luke uh, 22, 14 through 20 is a familiar passage probably to many of us. If we have been around church for a while or grew up in church, we perhaps have read this account of Jesus on the first night of communion when he institutes the practice. And he says a number of things that are important things here in this passage. But I want to draw our attention to one thing in particular that he says in verse 20. He says that the cup of communion is the new covenant in his blood. It's the new covenant in his blood. Now, what does he mean by this? Insofar as communion is a meal that signifies our participation in the new covenant, it's important that we understand a little bit about the old covenant that the new covenant is superseding. So I want to take just a moment here to understand this relationship between the covenants because this is before us a covenantal meal. But it's the covenantal meal of the new covenant, not the covenantal meal of the old covenant. So how do these covenants fit together? And in what sense is this meal a reflection of the new covenant? Now, if you remember your biblical history at all, if you grew up in church, perhaps you know the stories already. But immediately after delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, so the Israelites had gone into the land of Egypt. They were being oppressed by Pharaoh and in slavery. So God sent Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And as he brought them out of the land of Egypt, God instituted for the first time under the prophet Moses a covenant to make with his people. God had been in relationship with his people before, but this was the first time that he had made this covenant with his people. And the covenant was intended by God to be a blessing on the people, but ultimately the covenant failed because the people of God did not uphold their end of the bargain. So after the failure of this covenant, God began to speak to the people of Israel through the Jewish prophets. And so the Jewish prophets, long before the day of Christ, began to prophesy and foretell of a day that would come when God would make a new covenant with his people that would not be like the first covenant under Moses. This new covenant would supersede the covenant under Moses. So the first covenant, the covenant under Moses, had been able to cleanse the people, but only ceremonially and externally. It kind of pointed, gestured to the forgiveness of sins, but it couldn't cleanse people entirely from their sins, could not grant a complete remission. More fundamentally, it did not contain within itself the power to keep the covenant. So the covenant came with commands, but the covenant didn't come containing within itself the power to keep the commands of the covenant. But the new covenant that was prophesied about by the Jewish prophets was elevated in both of these respects. The new covenant, the prophets said, would grant complete remission of sins, that all things, all sins could be remitted under the provisions of this new covenant. And even better, the new covenant would contain within itself the capacity to keep the dictates and the commands of the covenant through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out upon the people of God under the old covenant. 
But yet in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all the people of God, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, all would participate equally in this distribution of the Spirit of God. And through this indwelling of God's presence and the, and the cleansing of the heart, the people of God would be freed from their sin and able to walk in newness of life. So on the night that, that Jesus spoke these words of institution about communion. This is the night before he dies. And it's the night also that he, as a Jewish man, is celebrating along with his disciples, who are also Jewish men, the Passover, the regular uh, Passover feast. And the Passover feast in the people of God was the great act of deliverance that preceded the inauguration of the covenant. So in this moment of Passover, God used the blood of the lamb to inaugurate and to, to lead his people into the covenant under Moses. And on the night that Jesus died, that they are celebrating this Passover lamb that inaugurates the first covenant, Jesus lifts the bread and he lifts the wine of the Jewish Passover meal, and he declared that the day of the long-awaited new covenant had come at last. The words of the Jewish prophets were finally fulfilled. The traditional cup of wine and the broken bread was given new meaning by Jesus. No longer would the bread and the wine look back to the sacrifices of the Passover lamb and the old covenant, but would ever after be understood as pointing towards the sacrifice of Christ that paves the way for the reception of the new covenant. So when we approach this table and we eat the bread and we drink the cup, Jesus is saying that we are eating and drinking of the new covenant meal. Just as the sacrifice of the Passover lamb paved the way for the coming of the old covenant, so too Jesus' sacrifice inaugurated and made possible the new covenant. And just as the Jewish people ate the Passover meal in celebration of the first covenant, in the same way the church eats the communion meal in celebration of the second covenant, the greater covenant, the new covenant. So every time we gather together and we celebrate communion, we are reaffirming and celebrating our participation in the redemption that has been afforded to us through the new covenant. And this helps explain why it is that communion is closed, as it were, to the covenant community. Communion is a covenantal celebration, and communion is therefore limited to the covenantal people. So if you've been in uh, church before at Calvary, and many, uh, the majority of Christian churches do this as well, there'll be a fencing of the table, which is a way of saying that this table is the covenantal meal for the covenantal people. And the provisions that are signified in this meal are provisions that are open to those who, have, uh, who are participants in the salvation of the covenant, and therefore is not a meal for those who are outside the covenant. This helps us explain also the relationship between baptism and communion that we touched on last week. You might recall that last week I said there's a proper ordering to the sacraments that they don't just sit next to each other as two important ordinances for the church, but rather there is a, there's a logic to them. Baptism, insofar as it's the initiation rite by which we enter formally and publicly into the people of God, into the new covenant people of God, is the sacrament that precedes then 
the sacrament of communion, which then is the celebration of our participation, our ongoing communion in the benefits and provisions of the new covenant. To eat at the covenantal meal without having participated in the covenantal initiation rite is to get things out of order. So to review what is communion, communion is a covenantal meal that celebrates the church's participation in the blessings of the new covenant. And the reason that that is such good news is brought out more fully as we answer our second question. What does communion signify? What does communion signify? And to answer this question, we turn now to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let me encourage you to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context because we're picking up Paul's uh, comments to the Corinthians right in the middle of a train of thought. And it's helpful to know what he's talking about here as we reflect on this passage. The letter, uh, the correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians went back and forth, back and forth, and Paul was instrumental in founding the Corinthian church. And so as the, the, uh, the new Christians in Corinth had questions about how they were to behave as Christians or what practices or things that they should believe, they would send letters back to the Apostle Paul, and he would, he would respond to the questions. And so what we have in 1 Corinthians is part of the dialogue, the exchange between the church in Corinth and the Apostle Paul. And much of what we read in 1 Corinthians is Paul's answer to the questions that the Corinthian church had asked him. And one of the questions that they had asked the Apostle Paul was, what do we do about food sacrificed to idols? Now, this isn't a common thing that we run into here in Oak Park and the surrounding areas, but this would have been a thing that you would have experienced in, uh, the, in Corinth back in the Greco-Roman world in the days of 1 Corinthians. And what would happen in those days is there would be some temple to some pagan god, whether it be Apollo or Artemis or, or, or Aphrodite, whatever it would be, and, and uh, the, uh, the worshiper who wanted to invoke the blessing of the pagan god would bring a sacrifice to the temple of this pagan god. And they would come with the sacrifice, and they would offer the sacrifice to the god. Now, invariably, the priest would take some of the sacrifice for themselves. The worshiper would eat some of the sacrifice and drink some of the wine, uh, if wine was being offered. And then whatever remained that couldn't be consumed would then be sold in the meat market. And it was a way for the ministers of the temple to make some money. They would take the leftover meat, and they would bring it to the meat market, and they would sell it. So the Christians in Corinth are asking this question, is it okay to go to the meat market and buy food when we don't know if some of that food may have been used in some of the temple sacrifices? And is this all right? This is the question that they ask of the Apostle Paul. So Paul then pens what we've just read already, his response to this question. Part of his answer to the question about eating food sacrificed to idols, the, the kind of the framework by which he answers this question, he draws a connection between the practice of communion and this idea of eating food that's been sold in the meat market. And through this connection, we can learn two things about what communion signifies. Signifies our, our spiritual union with Christ and it signifies our spiritual union with each other. So I want to look at both components here as we think about what does communion signify. First, uh, communion signifies our spiritual union with Christ. So we look back here at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, what does Paul mean here? How is partaking in the cup and the bread of communion in some way a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Perhaps even more fundamentally, why would we want to do such a thing? Why would we want to participate in the body and the blood of Christ? In order to make sense of this, it's helpful to have a bit of context from the old covenant, the first covenantal sacrificial system, remembering that what we're doing here is the new covenant meal that supersedes, as it were, the first covenantal meal. And this first covenantal meal is under, helpfully understood in light of all the provisions that happened under the first covenantal meal. So let's go back and think about this first covenantal meal, this, the sacrificial system of the old covenant. I don't, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to turn there to Leviticus chapter 17. And in Leviticus 17, under the dictates of the old covenant, the first covenant, the Lord gives some instructions about how they are to participate in the sacrifices of the old covenant, how, how the people of God, when they bring their sacrifices to the altar, how they're supposed to partake of the sacrifice of the altar. And this is what is written, Leviticus 17. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So here we have, under the dictates of the first covenant, when the worshiper would come with his sacrifice, whether it was a lamb or an oxen or a bull or a sheep, or whatever it would be, he would come with the sacrifice. The sacrifice would be, would be slaughtered. Some of the meat would be consumed by the worshiper. Some of the meat would be consumed by the priest. The rest of the meat might be used in distribution to the poor or to some of the Levites who were helping in the temple. But however they were allowed to eat the meat of the sacrifice, they were not allowed to drink or to eat, to consume the blood of the sacrifice. Strictly forbidden here in this text and then in a number of places all uh, throughout the dictates of the first covenant. Not allowed to eat or to consume the blood of the sacrifice. And did you catch what the rationale that was given here in Leviticus as to why they were not allowed to eat the blood of the sacrifice? They could not consume the blood of the sacrifice because the life is in the blood. In some way, the life of the animal is bound up in its blood. And to consume the blood of the animal would be a mingling of human life and animal life. And God strictly forbids to be, there to be any mingling between the animal life, the thing sacrificed, and the human, the one making the sacrifice. The two lives will be kept distinct and separate from each other. But now notice what happens when Jesus then comes along and inaugurates the new covenant that replaces that covenant. We not only eat the flesh of the sacrifice of the new covenant, but we also drink the blood of the new covenant. The blood of the new covenant we see in Luke chapter 22. We've already seen it. We see it in the other passages that talk about in the Gospels of the Lord's Supper. The blood of the sacrifice is not poured out on the ground. Jesus doesn't lift the cup and say, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. 
and poured on the ground like how it would have been poured under the old covenant. He holds aloft the blood of the new covenant and he says, take and drink because the life is in the blood. We are not to participate in the life of animals, but we are to participate in Christ's life. And communion is a profound reminder of the gospel, of our dependence upon Christ for our very life. That the life we are born with, our own mortal coil, it's a dying life. From the moment that we are born, we are already sliding towards death. But the life that we partake of when we partake of Christ is an immortal, divine, undying life. And that's why Jesus in John 6 can say rather shockingly for his day, and quite frankly, rather shockingly for our day, that if we are to have life, it's not to be found in ourselves because we have no life in ourselves, but we must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and we must drink his blood. And if we eat his flesh and drink his blood, then we live forever even if we die because the life of God is stronger than the death of men. Communion signifies our spiritual participation with Christ. Communion signifies that we are partakers of Christ's life and that we are one spirit with Christ and that we therefore live by his life. This is why Paul will say in his letter to the Galatians, in the church in Galatia, he'll say, it's not I who live, Paul says, but it's Christ who lives in me. I live in this body by the life of Christ. And communion is this profound reminder that signifies that we take into ourselves in the most intimate way the life of Christ. And the fact that it is a meal and therefore an ongoing repeatable act underscores the significance of this point. Just as we need to continually eat food and drink in order to sustain our physical lives, we need to, we need to continually feed on Christ in order to sustain our spiritual lives. We are forever the branch in the vine, an illustration that Jesus himself uses in John's gospel, right? that the branch finds its life insofar as it's connected to the vine. The branch has no life in itself. You cut the branch off from the vine, the, the branch dies. Right? As long as the branch is connected to the vine, the branch has life, but the, branch, but the life that the branch has is the, the life of the, of the vine. Right? We have in us the life of Christ by which we live when we are connected to Christ. Jesus gives us himself to give us life. He doesn't just, as it were, stay up in heaven and with like some thunderbolt like Zeus or lightning bolt zap us with new life. He gives us new life by connecting our life with his life, by bringing the life of God and the life of human beings together into one and that the life of human beings is now supported and uh, uh, supported and made new through the life of God. And this is what makes uh, baptism, this, the, this idea of uh, uh, the, the table being an ongoing repeated act, this is what makes baptism and communion both alike and similar from each other. 
are alike and different from each other. In one sense, both sacraments signify our union with Christ. Right? We looked at this last week, right? That baptism signifies our participation in Christ's death and his resurrection, our union with him in this reality. But, but, but baptism is a singular moment, a singular moment that celebrates and points towards our conversion. We die and rise with Christ, as it were, one time. It's a sacrament that happens once and is not repeated, whereas communion is an ongoing celebration of our participation in and dependence on Christ's life. Communion is the, the regular, continual feeding, just like we're born one time physically, but the fact that we're born one time physically doesn't mean that our life is somehow now propelled unendingly into the future. That life with, into which we were born must be nurtured regularly through our consumption of food. We are born, as it were, in this, uh, this moment of conver- conversion that baptism signifies. But then this life into which we are born is sustained through ongoing participation in Christ. And this is, why, this is why communion is something that the church celebrates regularly over and over and over and over again. Right? In the same way, we, we don't say, well, I only eat once a year so I don't get uh, too used to food and it loses its significance. Right? We eat over and over because we need it to sustain us. Right? Communion is the celebration of this dependence on Christ. So communion first signifies our participation in Christ, but that's not all. Communion also signifies something else. It signifies our spiritual union with one another, Christ's body. And this is the point that Paul makes in verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Communion is a communal act for the people of God, and it's a statement that we not only belong to Christ, but it's also a statement that we belong to one another. We cannot belong to Christ without also at the same time belonging to his body. The church is forever the body of Christ, of which he is the head. And the two are organically and inevitably inseparable. The reason that that the New Testament uses the language of body and head to describe the relationship between Christ and the church is to clarify that there is this organic, inseparable connection between the two, that the life of the head is the life of the body, that they go together and find their identity in each other. This is why communion is both a statement about our participation in Christ's life while it is simultaneously a statement about our participation in each other's lives. Insofar as you live by the Spirit of Christ and insofar as I live by the Spirit of Christ, we both live by the same life and are connected to each other. And this isn't merely a nice metaphor, like a nice illustration This is the reality by which the church lives. It is true in the most real way. We participate in each other as participants in Christ's spirit. This truth goes on to serve as the rationale for Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's giving the Corinthians a bit more uh, insight about how they are to celebrate the table. He's heard word that they're celebrating in a way that reflects internal strife and disunity within their congregation. And he says to them, how can you say that you are united with Christ when you are not united with each other? That's basically his logic there. And he says, this shouldn't be that way. We must take the supper, Paul will go on to say in chapter 11, in a way that discerns the body 
that pays attention to our fellow believers. We must consider not only our one spirit relationship with Christ when we come to the table, but we must also consider our spiritual union with our fellow believer. So communion then is a beautiful sign of this mutual participation that we have in each other as the people of God. And communion then, so, so communion, let's review what we've got. It's a covenantal meal that celebrates our participation in the grace of the new covenant. And communion signifies the chief feature of that covenantal grace, namely our participation in the very immortal life of God through Christ, as well as our participation in the lives of our fellow believers. But there's one more thing that we need to say that's important to say, and it's contained within our final question. What does communion promise? So we know what it is, we know what it signifies, but what does it promise? Communion is Christ's promise that he is with us while we wait for his return. This is made clear, I think, in the way that Paul draws a parallel between Christ's communion on one hand the pagan ritualistic sacrifices on second hand, and I don't know if you have three hands if this works, but on the third hand, the ancient Jewish sacrificial altar. Right? He's got all three of these forms of worship kind of running in parallel with each other, and he's, he's giving us insight about what's happening in communion based on what the understanding was of what was happening in these other forms of worship. Both the pagan and Jewish sacrificial rites included a meal of sorts, as we've already saw, as we've already mentioned. And it was believed that a participation in the sacrificial meal in some unique way invoked the presence of the God of the meal, the God who was being worshipped. So to share, to bring a sacrificial meal, as it were, to the temple of Apollo was in some way to have fellowship or to participate with Apollo. That would have been the understanding. And this is why Paul is being asked about eating food that has been sold in the meat market. If we eat food that was offered to a pagan god, the Corinthians are asking, does that not somehow implicate us in pagan worship and bring us into fellowship with the pagan gods? Paul's short answer given in 1020 is that yes, it does. If we, knowingly, if we knowingly participate in the pagan sacrificial meal, we are actually brought into fellowship, not with the pagan gods, because Paul doesn't grant that the pagan gods have any real existence. Not with the pagan gods, but we are brought into fellowship with the demonic powers that lie beneath the pagan idolatry. And the important thing to note here is that Paul affirms the innate connection between eating and participation whether it's the Jewish context or whether it's the pagan context, and then he applies it to communion. To partake of the communion cup and the bread is in some unique way to invoke the presence of Christ. Paul is here telling us that under the new covenant, Christ's presence is uniquely at the table when the body of Christ, his people, are gathered to share in the sacred meal. Just as those who drink the cup of demons, Paul says, participate with demons. This term participate is a, a Greek word that you would see translated elsewhere as fellowship, to have fellowship with. So just as those who drink the cup of demons have fellowship or participate with demons, so too when we drink the cup of Christ, we have unique fellowship or participate with Christ. 
Now, this might raise a question for some of you. It would be an understandable question, particularly if you were raised in the sort of milieu that Calvary uh, moves in. You might ask yourself, well, don't we already have ongoing fellowship with Jesus? Isn't he always present to us? Don't believers always participate in Christ? And the answer is both yes and no. We live between the ages, between Christ's first coming when he inaugurated the covenant meal and his second coming when we have this consummation of the covenant meal. We live between the two. And he has gone away and we rightly long for his return. And the reason we long for his return is because in a very real way, in a very real sense, he is absent from us. This is why Paul says elsewhere that to be present in the body is to be absent from the Lord. It's why Jesus can say that if he did not come back and take us unto himself, we would be left as orphans. So there is this sense that we find in Scripture that all that Jesus will be for us, he is not yet for us. And that in the present, we live with some real measure of his absence. Communion, Paul is saying, is a way that Christ makes himself present in a unique, tangible way, different than how he is present to us in all ways at all times. Different Christians have debated about how precisely to state this or how this works itself out, and I'm not going to try to sort all of that out right now. But what is clear from this text is that Paul sees a unique connection between participating in communion and participating in Christ. Communion, then, is a covenant sign, but it is not just a sign. Communion is a covenant sign that contains within itself the thing signified. We're getting into some, some deep waters here. Let me see if I can uh, use this illustration. It's not my own, but it's one that I've found helpful to help understand this a bit. Communion is a sign of our life in Christ in the same way that a kiss is a sign of love. A kiss is not only a sign of love, but is itself a means of love. A kiss as a sign is actually an embodiment of the thing that it signifies. To be kissed by one's lover is to be loved by one's lover. A kiss isn't just a statement that we are loved. It isn't just a sign that we are loved. It is itself the love by which we are loved. I believe it's the same way with communion. Communion is a visible sign of Christ's promise that he is with us even to the end of the age. But it's not just a visible sign of the promise. It is also a unique means by which he fulfills the promise. When we as Christ's body come together to celebrate the covenant meal, we are invoking with Jesus' blessing and permission his presence. And that's why communion has always been recognized in the Christian tradition as the apex of Christian worship. To gather at the table, to drink from the cup, and to eat from the bread is to participate in some real unique way in the person of Christ. I'm content not to say more at this point, to leave the mystery of communion uh, intact. But I, I accept by faith what Paul says here in this passage, and I exhort you to as well, that to eat the bread and drink the cup, Paul says, 
is in some mysterious way to partake of his body and his blood, which is to say, to partake of him. As with baptism, we talked about last week, I recognize that this perspective may be new for some of you. You may have to sit and think and pray about it and reflect on it more. And I understand that, and I, and I invite you to prayerfully uh, consider it. But however we understand communion, we should take it seriously as a holy moment, a profound sign of the covenant, and a statement about our ongoing participation in the very life and person of Christ. So what is communion? Communion is a covenantal sign that signifies our participation in the saving grace of the new covenant. What does it signify? It signifies our ongoing one spirit connection with Christ, as well as our spiritual union with Jesus' body, the church. And what does communion promise? Communion is Jesus' promise and the fulfillment of that promise that he is with us even while we wait for him to return. So we're going to approach the table here in just a moment. And as we do so, I would encourage you to reflect what aspect of communion did you most need to hear from the Lord this morning? Perhaps as you approach the table this morning, what you need to hear from the Lord is a reminder that this table is the covenant meal of the new covenant wherein all of our sins are forgiven. And perhaps you've come here carrying your shame, carrying your brokenness, carrying your sin, and you feel unworthy. Of course you're unworthy. We're all unworthy. And that is why God has given us this new covenant meal, to celebrate the freedom from sin and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. So perhaps that's the word for you this morning, to remember that this is the meal of the new covenant with all its provisions of grace. And that not only does God wipe away your sin in the sacrifice of Christ, but as our baptism teaches us, we are raised up with Christ to new life. And the gift of the Spirit is poured out in our lives under the provisions of the new covenant. And we have the power to walk in faithfulness and in newness of life. Perhaps that's the word for you this morning. Well, perhaps you needed to be reminded what communion signifies, that it signifies our one spirit relationship with Christ, that the life by which we live is not our own life, but is the life of Christ in us, and that as we strive to live out this Christ life, strive to honor him, strive to bring him glory, and we find that we can't do it in our own strength, of course we cannot do it in our own strength. That's what this meal shows us and reminds us that we live by his life. This life is not our own. We don't live by our own life. We live by Christ's life. Or perhaps in a very tangible way, today you are uniquely faced with your own mortality. I've talked with a number of you who look ahead to the possibility of dying in ways that you did not expect and prematurely. Let this meal be a reminder to you the words of Christ's promise that even if we die, yet still we live because the power of Christ's life is greater than human death and God will make good on his promise given to us in Christ that he will raise us up with new life, not just metaphorically, not just spiritually, but that really and truly there is a resurrection that waits and this table reminds us that it is the life of Christ in us that gives us that hope. Or perhaps what you need to be reminded of this morning 
is this word of promise that this table reminds us that Jesus is present with us. That even as we wait for him to come back and to receive us unto himself, that he is present with us in the middle of his absence. And perhaps you've been seeking after God and not finding him, and you have been like trying to climb the ladder to heaven, but you find that the trap door that gets you into heaven is locked, and your prayers can't seem to make it through the ceiling, and the scriptures don't seem to be pointing you to God. And what you find that you've been doing is you've been trying to, to climb up and to lay hold of Christ and to bring him down. And it's all been within your own strength and your own striving. This table is a table of grace because Christ comes down to meet us. Because we don't have to chase after him through the labyrinths to find him. But he comes to meet us here at this table. So perhaps if you've been struggling with the sense of Christ's absence in your life, you just don't feel him to be near to you, then be reminded here at this table that he is near to you in this moment that he has promised that in some way, as you partake of these elements and the covenant meal together that we celebrate, that Christ is truly, really here. And you don't have to search to find him, but he has offered himself to you in this meal. So reflect on these things. See, perhaps the Lord has spoken something different to your heart even this morning. But as we turn now to the table, let the Spirit speak to you about the blessings and provisions and benefits of this meal. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that in your kindness to us, you have come and you have given us this place where we connect with each other, and where we connect with Christ, and where we are reminded of all the provisions of the covenant into which we are so graciously and privileged to partake. God, we thank you that you love us with the love with which you've loved Christ, and we thank you that we have hope in him. God, I pray for those that are gathered here. I pray that you would now speak a word, speak a word directly to their heart. You know the stories that they've come in here with, each of us our own fears, our own insecurities, our own places of need. And God, I pray that you would now speak a word uh, of grace to them through this meal, that you remind them of the provisions of your promise. Lord, for those that are not yet believers who have not given themselves to you, I pray that they would see in this table the hope of their very lives, this life and the life to come. Convict them, Lord, by your spirit of the truth of all that is represented here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.